0: when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time uh, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they, were, they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was, uh, uh, sorry, was reigning over Judea in a place over the, uh, his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher, that you would open your word to us, and that your Holy Spirit would come and apply your words to each one of our lives, that you would stir in us faith. Uh, faith in your goodness, in your love, that you are God over all creation, God over our lives and our life stories. And um, we pray that you would lead us into truth, that we would walk with you in hope and joy and faith. And uh, we thank you for the coming of our Lord Jesus, um, our great hope and our salvation. And we pray this in his name, amen. So uh, we, this morning we're gonna be uh, talking about the, Topic of tragedy. Uh, actually, it's just been a little over two weeks since uh, the the tragedy in, in Newtown, uh, Connecticut, uh, at Sandy Hook Elementary, which, um, of course, you know, we're on the other side of the country. And as we go into a new year, we're going to be kind of moving on from thinking about that tragedy. And um, and yet, something so horrific that's just happened in our uh, our nation. Uh, raises all kinds of questions for many people about where was God uh, in, in this event. And, uh, and of course, the question of evil in the world, this is an evil event, it's very complex, and it's very difficult. But one of the things that's very striking about what's just happened a couple of weeks ago is um, that it happened near Christmas. The reason why that's striking is because uh, one of the things that we don't talk that much about during Christmas is, uh, is that the Christmas story had um, a horrifying element to it. There was something horrific that happened when Jesus was born. He was born into a, a, a community, into a, a, a small community that was uh, stricken with tragedy. And, uh, of course, you saw that there in verse 16 where it says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, uh, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So this is Herod the Great. This is actually what we know of him. This is fairly typical. He was a terrible king. He, uh, he actually killed many people in his family, killed his own wife because he thought that they were uh, plotting against him. He was a very suspicious and violent man. And here, being threatened that a new king was born, Jesus, being threatened by that, um, he slaughtered, which was probably, you know, Bethlehem was a small village, so this is probably about 20 kids. Uh, here it is, right in the middle of the Christmas story, um, something very relevant to what uh, our culture, our, our society, has been, our, our nation has been facing these last few weeks. And what it tells us is that Jesus, God becoming a man, was born into tragedy. He was born into it. He lived in it. He was born in a community that was facing the pains of, of tragedy, of children dying. And, uh, of course, you know, some people say, well, you know, Jesus escaped. God let Jesus escape the tragedy. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't one of the babies. He wasn't one of the 20. And, well, that was, just, that was just delaying that Jesus was going to avoid this tragedy because, uh, you know, here you have uh, Herod, who is a vassal king to the, the Roman, uh, Roman emperor. Uh, later it's going to be Pontius Pilate, who is also a, a governor in the Roman Empire, who would slaughter Jesus. And so his time was just coming. It was being delayed. And that this is when God became a man, when God came into our world, what he stepped into was a community in tragedy. And so um, the reality is that tragedy plays a role in every one of our lives. Tragedy does. And so what I want to do is I look at this as we look at this passage together. There are three quotations in this passage. I don't know if you caught that. Three times Matthew says that Jesus did what was to fulfill what the prophets said. See, so he quotes from the Old Testament three times. And I want to look at each of those three quotes and show what it has us, show what it can teach us about living in a world where tragedy happens. Three things. And the first is this. Tragedy is a part of our story tragedy is a part of our story. And uh, if you look again, starting in verse 13, where it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And then he says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. You see that quote? This is from uh, Hosea chapter 11, Hosea 11.1. 1. Now, uh, what's interesting about this quote, you go back to Hosea, Hosea, uh, you know, was written uh, about six centuries before uh, uh, before Jesus was born, and uh, there's this quote that says, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, if you go back and you read that, you would say... This is talking about, this is a prediction about Jesus who's going to come later out of Egypt. You know, it's a little vague. And actually, I'm not even sure that it's talking about Jesus. Actually, if you went back and read it, you find out it wasn't talking about Jesus. It was talking about Israel, who uh, back in Egypt, uh, remember, they, Israel was in Egypt. They were slaves under Pharaoh, and uh, God uh, delivered them by the hand, through Moses. There was the ten plagues, and they went through the, the, uh, the Red Sea. And uh, he delivered them, and it was out of Egypt I called my son. So, so a lot of times people read that and say, well, what's Matthew talking about? He's just kind of ripping something out of context and sticking it in, in the gospel of Matthew. But the problem is, the reason we don't understand it is because we read the, the Bible backwards. So most of us, when we've read this little verse, out of Egypt I've called my son, uh, we read Matthew first. You know, I know when I became a Christian, Matthew was one of the first books I read. And then I said, well, where did, where's the prediction about Jesus? But the Bible is, is not read New Testament, then Old Testament. It's read Old Testament and the New Testament. And what Matthew is saying is that Israel's story, that they were a people that was in, they were enslaved, they were imp- oppressed. You know, that was Israel's story uh, th- through, for millennia. They were oppressed by the, you know, they were slaves to the Egyptians. Then they were, uh, they were taken into exile by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then, uh, and then the Persians and then the Medes and then the Greeks and then the Romans. They've lived under oppression. They've lived among tragedy. And what Matthew is saying is that Jesus is playing out Israel's story. He is Israel. He's representing Israel. He is the new Israel. And what was true for Israel's story, if Jesus is going to be the true Israelite, he's going to be the true hero of who Israel is, the Old Testament. The, pe- the person they've been waiting for, he needs to live their story. And tragedy was a part of their story. Tragedy was a s- part of the story of the Son of God when he became a man. And tragedy is also a part of our story. And, um, you know, someone uh, gave me a, a book for Christmas uh, just last week called A Grace Revealed, which is written by a guy named Jerry Sitzer, who's a, a professor over at Whitworth College. And uh, Sitzer's story is interesting. This is a second book uh, that he wrote. Um, Twenty years ago, uh, Sitzer's family was in a car accident. They were hit by a drunk driver. And uh, in one accident, he lost his mother his wife, and his daughter. Just like that, gone. Terrible, absolutely terrible tragedy. And uh, about four or five years after the tragedy, he wrote a book called A Grace, uh, a Grace Disguised, and about grieving and about uh, suffering and loss. And, um, and now, 20 years later, he's written another book um, called A Grace Revealed. And what he said was, you know, back then, when the tragedy happened and he looked into the future... He saw a future that was just void and dark, uh, confusing, blank. What's going to be there? I've, I have no hope for the future. I, I mean, I've just, this is absolutely devastating. There can be no life left for me. And now he's writing 20 years later, looking back on those 20 years. And, um, and Sitzer makes a number of observations about the role that tragedy plays uh, in, in our stories. And he first says that redemption, the story of redemption, where God redeems us, where God redeems our lives, makes us his children... Um, is a story, and it's a story where God is the author of that redemptive story from beginning to end, which is an amazing thing. Here's a man who's lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter in one accident, and he says that every element of his story has been calculated by God. Every element of his story. He is living in a story uh, that involves tragedy. Tragedy is a part of our story. And then he goes on to say this. The setting, this is an amazing statement. The setting and circumstances in which we live, however desirable or miserable, always play a limited role. And if submitted to God, can actually play a useful role. He says that whatever circumstances we have, whether they're miserable, whether they're good, they always play only a limited role in, in, in our story. They're limited. And so he says two things. First of all, he says that whatever happens to us plays a limited role. It is not our whole life. And, you know, that would be hard for me t- to say to you, but here's a man, that's why I, I let him say it to you. Here's a man who has faced tragedy, and 20 years later, he says, as hard and as difficult and he thought, as much as I thought my life was over, it wasn't. It, but it also played a role in my life. It was a part of my story. And um, and what that means is that there is something bigger that tragedy plays a role in um, with our life. So what is what is that bigger thing? Now, I can't tell you everything. I don't know the mind of God. God orchestrates all these things, and it's it's his decision to uh, uh, to place things in our life. But there's one thing um, that the scriptures tell us about and that, that's... Uh, Sitzer also tells us about is that this is the second thing I want to say about tragedy is that tragedy is a part of becoming holy. Experiencing tragedy, experiencing suffering and sorrow is a part of becoming holy. And uh, the second quote that we see in this passage um, comes in verse 17. Uh, then uh, was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So here Matthew's going back to Jeremiah, and he takes a passage to talk about these children that have uh, been uh, killed in this community, and he says this is to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said would happen. Now One of the things we have to understand is when we read a little scripture like that, I read, you know, a little quote from Jeremiah, and most of us, we don't know Jeremiah very well, and we kind of think that there's just this blob of Old Testament passages, and he went and picked this little one that happened to fit this context, and uh, he used that to kind of, I don't know, wrap the story to say that this was predicted, For some reason. But uh, the reality is when when Matthew, Matthew's writing to a community of Jews who would have known the book of Jeremiah. And actually they would have known the chapter that this was quoted from. Because what happens is when, when Matthew quotes an Old Testament passage, what he's expecting it to do is for his readers, it's supposed to trigger in their minds not just that verse, but actually a whole chapter. And maybe even whole books or even whole sections of the Old Testament or whole stories. This quote comes from one of the most important chapters of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31 which is the chapter where uh, we get the prophecy of the new covenant. If, uh, you know, every Lord's Day, we I, uh, we celebrate communion together, and when I pour the wine, I say, "This is Jesus says, this is a new covenant in my blood, that um, we are heirs of a new covenant. What's a new covenant? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, God had chosen Israel, this, this chosen people to be his people and they were to be a light to the world. They were to be a royal priesthood to all the nations. They are supposed to show the nations who God is like and it turns out that they were a miserable failure at obeying God and loving God and serving God, kind of like we are failures in that. And so God makes a promise to them. He says, you know what, I'm going to make a new covenant that just doesn't just tell you what I demand of you, but it's actually a covenant where I'm going to actually transform your heart. I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a, a heart of flesh, a soft heart and I'm going to actually make you holy. I'm going to transform who you are and that was in Jeremiah 31 and uh, where this passage comes from it says uh, this is what it says in Jeremiah 31 but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my law within them I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and so this passage about the suffering of the children the suffering of Rachel and her children they're going to suffer that suffering was the path to the new covenant suffering was the path to having a new heart and to becoming a new kind of person and, be, and to being transformed into a person that actually trusts God and loves God and obeys God and actually loves people and becoming who God made me to be. The path was through suffering. And um, the, uh, to quote uh, Sitzer one more time, this is what Sitzer says, the goal of redemption is not immediate happiness as we might define it now, but holiness of life not the good life as we imagine it on earth, but the perfection of heaven. He says that the goal of redemption is uh, holiness, and that the way that God creates holiness in us is through putting us through suffering often. Now, I know that that's a frightening thought to many of you, that God wants to make me holy, and that the the way he's going to do that is by uh, hurting me. And you say, what is he going to do? What is that big, wild, strong, powerful king? Who's uh, you can't see him. He, I don't know what he's doing. He's got some plan. He's unpredictable. He's wild. What is he going to do to me? And uh, that's kind of that's a frightening thought. Um, But the thing I want to ask you is, what do you picture when you think of holiness? When I say that tragedy uh, has a part in making us become holy, how do you picture holiness? And the way I want to, you, should, the way you should picture holiness, I want you to picture someone late in life who's been through many uh, sorrows and many blessings. They're gentle. They're slow to speak. They laugh at children. They love children. They're warm. Um, and they're someone that you would trust telling anything to. That gentle wisdom, and they love the Lord. They love the Lord above anything else. That gentle wisdom is what holiness is. And the fact is, for us to say that God actually cares more about that than me being happy, is a good thing. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be that kind of person—an aged, worn, you know, <laughs> wrinkles and and uh, beaten on and worn, but gentle and warm and loving and caring? That's what God is making you into. And so uh, the reality is that, um, and, and the fact is, holiness has a deeper joy. A, a deeper happiness than the kind of superficial happiness that we seek for in our life. It is far deeper, and God wants to give us that. And the way, the path that he's going to do that is through suffering. And, um, you know, I put a, a quote for you on page three of your bulletin. You know, I had a short week this week with sickness, so I always quote C.S. Lewis when I don't have much time for a sermon. And um, and this, uh, this is a, one of my favorite quotes from his collection of articles and essays and lectures, uh, The God in the Dock," and this is what Lewis says. The people who keep on asking if they can't lead a decent life without Christ don't know what life is about. If, If they did, they would know that a decent life is mere machinery compared with the thing we men are really made for. Morality is indispensable, but the divine life which gives itself to us and which calls us to be gods, I'll explain that in a sec., intends for us something in which morality will be swallowed up. We are to be remade. All the rabbit in us is to disappear, the worried, conscientious, ethical rabbit, as well as the cowardly and sensual rabbit. We shall bleed and squeal as the handfuls of fur come out, and then, surprisingly, we shall find underneath it a thing we have never yet imagined, a real man an ageless God, a son of God, strong, radiant, wise, beautiful, and drenched in joy. Tragedy is the bleeding and squealing as the hair is being pulled out and turning us from a rabbit into a son of God, radiant with wisdom. That is what God's doing in us. That is the deeper thing that God's... That is one deeper thing. That is one mystery. And, um... And so um, tragedy is, on the one hand, will be a part of our story. And also, tragedy is a part of becoming holy. But third, tragedy is a part of God himself. Tragedy is also a part of God's own life. And uh, this third quote from the Old Testament, starting in verse 19, I'm going to read this whole passage again. But uh, um, Actually, we'll we'll just skip down uh, to verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, as different than the other two Old Testament quotes that, I, uh, that we read. Uh, If you go back to the Old Testament, you're not going to find this quote, which has been kind of puzzling for commentators. Uh, Where is this? Well, there's a little hint that Matthew gives you. You know, in the other two, he says, uh, in uh, the first one, it says, this is to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then in verse 17, then this was fulfilled, uh, this was fulfilled, uh, oh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. But this third quote changes it. And it says, uh, that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. And uh, what I think Matthew is doing is he's summarizing uh, the picture of when the Messiah comes, when God becomes a man, what will he be like? The summary is uh, that he will be a Nazarene, which is, uh, you know, if you've read the Gospel of John, you know there's a little episode with uh, Nathaniel where he hears about Jesus, that he's from Nazareth, and he says, Does, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that's kind of a picture of what Nazareth is. is this place, uh, is this marginalized place of kind of hillbillies that live, uh, you know, in the north country. Uh, uh, he lived a marginalized, poor life, a suffering life. He was not uh, prominent, he was not wealthy, he was not rich, um, he put himself in the margins. He put himself among the suffering and the outcasts and um, in the least. And, um, and of course, uh, Jesus living in the margins was most pronounced when he died on the cross next to uh, two robbers. He d- died as a murderer. He took the place of a murderer uh, and uh, this shameful death on the cross. And uh, what we see is the tragedy is a part of God's own life. That God um, took tragedy upon himself. And I'm going to give you one more quote. This is from Tim Keller. He says, If we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. And so what we know about the role of tragedy in our lives and our stories is on the one hand that is used by God to make us holy, to make us like Jesus, but also um, even more deeply that God takes suffering so seriously That he cares for us so deeply that every trial we experience, every trial, whether it's physical pain, whether it's betrayal in relationships, whether it's the death of of loved ones, all of these things Jesus experienced himself. And, uh, And he didn't just experience it like some stoic, like, oh, these, you know, I can handle it, God's good no matter what. He didn't handle it like that. Jesus, when his friend Lazarus was dying, he was weeping openly. Uh, when Jesus was going to the cross, to be, he was being betrayed. He was going to suffer a, a shameful and a physically uh, torturous death. He says he's pleaded with God, please, would there be another way? He suffered as a fully human man. He, f- he suffered as a man, and he entered into our tragedy. And so the thing um, in the midst of tragedy, with all the confusion, all the questions, the one thing we can know for sure is that God loves us. He is not an indifferent, distant energy out in the sky. He loves us, and he's with us in it. And so as tragedy uh, comes to us, what do we do? The answer is we don't run. We know that it's a part of our story, and we stay there, and we trust in the God who loves us, and we wait for God. And at times, we may even say that bitterness is my lot, tragedy. Is my lot, but we know that bitterness and tragedy were his lot also, and so we can trust him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for how honest your word is. We thank you for um, it is not superficial. It is not trite. But it faces the real pain that we suffer um, in our life and in this world. We pray that you would give us courage and faith um, to walk with you as we face tragedy and even as we will as a community face tragedy in this church. Would we know that you do love us? Would you be our only refuge, our only hope, our only peace, our only comfort? And would you indeed make us holy, make us like our Savior? And we pray this in Jesus' name.